This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Hi, I'm Stephanie Amir from Joy 94.9. I'm passionate about making current research more accessible to the public. So as part of a joint project between Joy and La Trobe University, I interviewed 13 PhD students from La Trobe about their work. First up, we have Aidan Cranny. Aidan is a PhD student at La Trobe University's Anthropology Department, and he's looking at issues facing young people in the Pacific. Uh, the research I'm undertaking at La Trobe University is looking at the state of youth livelihoods and development in the Pacific Islands, specifically looking at Fiji and Solomon Islands. What are some of the things that you've found so far? Yeah, so I've just come back from field work. I spent three months in Fiji and then uh, I've just returned from six weeks in Solomon Islands where I was conducting focus groups with young people and interviews with uh, experts in in the field who work with with youth in in various guises. So that can be from uh, anything from economics through to government bureaucrats the NGO staff. And what we found is rather than there being one simple reason why young people may not be able to achieve their potential, um, and there isn't one uh, simple solution either, it's, it's rather a, a number of factors that interplay with each other. I'm curious to know about um, how the young people in the Pacific Islands compared to those in Australia. Are sort of the, the challenges that they're facing quite similar or are there big differences between the groups? At a structural level, the, the development of the Pacific Islands is significantly behind Australia in most areas. You've also got one of the main issues they're facing compared to Australia is that Australia is a highly urbanised society. I think we've got about 85% of the population live in urban centres, whereas in the Pacific Islands, the populations are quite dispersed. Uh, not only are they not centred in urban areas, but they're often in, in remote islands that can be hundreds of kilometres away from the nearest urban centre. And what kind of effects does that have playing out on the ground that affect on things like success? From a, from a livelihood perspective, um, which really revolves around how people put food on the table, um, what their ambitions are and how likely they are to achieve those as they age and, and how that's going to affect their community, their family and so on. It's really different because in the Pacific Islands it tends to be uh, a subsistence-based economy. Uh, even if there's some kind of formal employment included in that, uh, it's almost a subsidised subsistence living in a sense. So you've got an economy that's much more focused on providing the day-to-day and planning ahead through agricultural and agrarian methods as opposed to in Australia where our system is set up so that young people go through formal education, primary, secondary, um, often tertiary. And at the end of secondary or tertiary, there's a clear line that, okay, it's now time to get into formal employment um, to get money in the bank to then buy the food to put on the table. So some of the, the major differences then that come up comparing the Pacific Islands to Australia is that you've got to, you've got to take a completely different tack to, to how you approach development. Development is kind of a given in Australia. You know, countries aren't run like organisations we don't necessarily have strategic plans that we know where we're trying to head in 10, 20, 50 years. But in Australia, there's kind of an innate sense that we'll continue with a, a knowledge-based economy, a service-based economy, and we'll continue down that kind of modern developing path. Whereas in the Pacific Islands, you've got one foot very much in the modern economy and one foot in the subsistence economy. So it really changes the way that you have to approach what your tactics are at a policy level for how young people will be able to achieve their potential in the next 10, 20, 50 years. 
Is the definition of success in Fiji and the Solomon Islands something that is changing more rapidly now when we have uh, impacts like globalisation? It's a really contested area. As I said before, the dynamic between modern and traditional, there's a fair bit of tension around that at times. And when I speak with young people in the rural communities in particular and I ask them what the issues they're facing are, modernisation and westernisation actually comes up as a recurrent theme. Um, And when I explore that, what they're talking about are difficulties that come from globalisation. So the fact that they're smaller players means that in an import-export market, they don't have as strong a bargaining position. It also means issues like climate change are really affecting them right now in the present, whereas um, throughout much of the rest of the world, particularly the developed countries, we're not seeing those effects as immediately and so we're not prioritised. That was Aidan Cranny. And next up, we have Anastasia Kanjeri, who's undertaking a PhD in politics and philosophy looking at critical whiteness. Your research focuses on critical whiteness, and I'm curious for people who haven't come across that phrase before, can you tell us a bit more about the framing looking at whiteness rather than other concepts like race more broadly? It's definitely a term that people are a little bit freaked out about at first. They're often like, you mean the colour? There definitely is also a discipline of critical race studies, and, and often they're lumped together of critical race and whiteness studies. The reason that I frame it as critical whiteness studies is that it's in particular focused on Whiteness. So if you think, if we think about kind of the post-colonial notion about the gaze and who gets looked at and who does the looking and the studying, critical whiteness studies is quite explicitly trying to make whiteness the focus and the object which gets problematized as opposed to what's kind of more traditionally happened of it being the kind of neutral central observer. I like this focus on critical whiteness studies because it allows you to go back and ask the question, well, what are the kind of conditions of power and privileging of identity that make those things then occur? Um, So what are the biggest structural things that are happening other than just, wow, this person's really fair in this show? And I know some of your work looks at film as one of the texts, and this is an area where there's so many examples where we see racism through the way that things are framed and the way people presented. I even read an article recently about Jurassic Park and the way that the dinosaurs were coded was with these racial overtones. Sure. Can you talk a bit about that and I guess what we can do about it or is this something that's improving and changing? Definitely film is huge in terms of representations of race and, and often not representation, so it's often and kind of the exclusion that's the problem. Um, but then when we do, um, when there are characters of colour, there's there can be all sorts of um, uh, problems with uh, how they get sort of sidelined or kind of used in the narrative arc um, of the of the white character. So um, director Spike Lee came up with this term, the super duper magical negro, to talk about the way that, um, in particular, African American characters can sometimes be used to kind of to fix or sort of come in helpfully and develop the white character and then disappear and we never kind of get insight into that person. And then, as you point out, kind of the being also made monstrous and, and scary. Um, so Pirates of the Caribbean has got some really horrifying examples of that, uh, in particular of, of the representation of women of colour in that film and um, and King Kong's another pretty wild uh, example. Recently, Chris Brown, the performer, was going to come to Australia and there was some petitions against him coming because of his history of violence against women. And I also know 
know there was some commentary around the way that petition was presented. Do you have any comment on that in terms of that, uh, yeah, the, the challenge with that issue? So it was actually interesting. Um, GetUp actually retracted their campaign in the end based on some of these um, criticisms. One of the things that troubled me about the campaign was the way that it kind of used the border. And, you know, in particular, I, you know, have, have been involved in some activism around refugee issues and stuff. So it was very troubling to me to see um, this idea of somebody not getting a visa being this um, kind of positive feminist thing rather than something which we know happens to a lot of women to really um, devastating effect to them. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a, definitely an unfortunate thing. And then, of course, there was as well the, um, you know, the fact that Chris Brown's African-American, that um, Tyler, the creator's African-American, that Floyd Mayweather's African-American, that all of these men, a Kanye West collective shout, have gone after for, I mean, he's kind of a mad genius, but I mean, I, I, I definitely don't think he's a kind of notch above in terms of misogyny of any um, particular pop star. Yeah, so that's that can be one of these really unfortunate things where this positioning gets kind of created where it's kind of like white women versus men of colour and, and, and women of colour disappear from that confrontation, yeah. Anna Brower is studying the phenomenon of greenwashing at Latrobe's Marketing and Management Department. Greenwashing is irrelevant, exaggerated or false information about a company's green credentials. They would say that they're very environmental friendly while they're actually either completely not or just basically exaggerating the greenness of their product. Packaging often contains words like chemical free, which basically nothing in the world is chemical free. Everything is made out of a chemical and people interpret it as there is no added chemicals, but it doesn't mean that a natural chemical, if you have a natural dish washing detergent, it can still have natural chemicals in it that might be unhealthy and also bad for the environment. But people don't interpret it that way. Water is a chemical. Yes. Salt is a chemical. It's the same as claims like 100% natural. If a soft drink would mention on their package 100% natural, you're not going to believe that it's 100% natural. And sometimes people know it. They will assume that it's not 100% natural. They'll probably interpret it as there is something natural added to it. And sometimes it's a bit harder to distinguish that from what is actually meant by the claim that they make. So what are some of the downsides or yeah, bad things that come from this misleading advertising? People think that they do something good for the environment or they think that they uh, buy something that's good for their baby or their child, but actually it's not. So um, it's often that something is exaggerated or yeah, just in, ir irrelevant. So they use a CFC free claim, which CFC is already banned, I think, since the 90s. Um, and they choose that product over other products that don't make that claim, which not necessarily makes product A better than product B. It can be difficult to get the right information unless you know sort of every ingredient on packaging. Is there a way for people to get accurate information or is that one of the challenges that we have? That's one of the challenges. <laughs> there has been some research about different names for, for example, palm oil. I think a company can add 250 different names for it. And the most easy one is vegetable oil. It's really hard to find out what are the exact ingredients on a package. And even a process with cars, for example, they might be fuel efficient, but the production of a car is the part in the life cycle that is most environmentally damaging. So it's nice if you have a fuel efficient car, but the making of it will still impact. Do we have laws protecting against these false or misleading claims? The ACCC has laws 
for false advertising and also a few for misleading in the um, Australian consumer law. But there is a massive gray area and it already shows that there has been research that says that about 95% of environmental claims are not completely true. So it shows the extent of the problem that how big the playground basically companies have to play around with. That's quite shocking. Yes. <laughs> That's a lot. You know, like one solution to this is stricter laws or another one is trying to increase public information. But there would be a lot to know in terms of, um, you know, what each ingredient is. So the palm oil one is a good example. We know palm oil is um, obviously often produced in unethical ways, but I'm sure there's hundreds of other things as well to worry about. So where do we even start with tackling this? So I'm looking at partly regulation, partly corporate and partly the consumer and and basically, the consumers should be more aware and should be more critical. Companies should be more, you know, following, I guess, the guidelines. And regulation is what I just said. It's mainly guidelines and there's some laws. It's all very blurry. Yeah, it's a, it's a big challenge. Our next researcher is Danny Davis. He's a student at Latrobe's Business School investigating innovation and decision making in organisations. Your research is about innovation. So is Australia an innovative country? How are we going innovation-wise? There's a good question. Look, we are at some levels. I think, I think naturally Australians are inquisitive troublemakers <laughs> looking for new, easier, better ways of doing things. So what does make something innovative? My area of research um, and, and my interest is um, in not so much the innovation itself but about large organisations and why are large organisations who have you know, lots of money, really good staff, great brands, great reach, really awful at innovating and really frustrating places to work and really frustrated with themselves. What are the barriers to innovation? Why aren't they able to make use of all of that skill and resources? The way I work on it is about the decision-making process of the organisation, kind of treating an organisation as a, as a living system. How does it think? How does it work? How does it make decisions? And uh, it's kind of the governance practices of the organisation. And uh, what I look at is the fact that the, the way we make decisions in these organisations was designed for the types of projects that used to be good ones to find 20, 30, 40 years ago. They're not the good projects to find anymore but that's what our process is, what our decision-making is good at finding and funding and nurturing. All those clever, innovative, fast-moving, learning projects, they just kind of get weeded out. So the challenge is to get the thinking and the logic of the organisation to be able to engage, I call it innovation-aware governance. How do you get the decision-making process of the organisation to engage with clever thinking, with new ideas, with radical ideas? The old way about doing it was to find something that's brilliant, large-scale, these big, enormous projects or mergers and acquisitions or huge investments and try and de-risk them. So they'd get into it and they'd analyse and they'd try to analyse it until there was no risk left. And that was the way about going. If you, if you had a risk, if you had a project failure, that was because you were no good at analysing it. But the type of projects we get these days that need to be full of experimentation, mm. full of development, full of learning. We know we want that learning in what we, what we do, but our decision-making process doesn't support it. So an, a project that has this risk just doesn't move ahead at all, whereas it should move ahead stage by stage on its merits. I have heard um, some examples of where organisations have intentionally tried to embed innovation in the culture. For example, when they have, okay, the last Friday of every month you get the day off, you have to be at work but working on whatever you like. Um, are these kinds of things working? Is that changing things? And what other uh, good examples have you seen where it does work? So, look, these, these things 
can can work and can fail. So they're not a golden bullet answer. Um, and a lot's been said about, uh, I think that was originally called Google Free Time. They've very quietly withdrawn that, by the way. Oh, can you tell us <laughs> why or is that uh, not for radio scandal? <laughs> um, well, I think, I think just because it didn't work. Uh, you know, there hasn't been a lot of press release about why it didn't work. Um, but to just let people go off on ideas doesn't doesn't solve the problem of how do you work out which the good ones are? How do you take it from an idea that you did on a Friday and turn it into something that actually has 100 people on it or 1,000 people working on it or is going to make a huge economic impact? It's actually about taking things through a development process from concept right the way up to it's an operating business that you're continuing to develop and has, has you know, world-changing and business-changing implications. Next, we have archaeologist Edwina Kay. She's researching the Melbourne institution Abbotsford Convent. It wasn't just home to nuns. It was also a Magdalen laundry. So it was home to thousands of wayward and vulnerable women and girls for over 100 years. Women who didn't conform. It was established to reform prostitutes, but... The women that went there were were actually a much more diverse group than that. So there might have been women who had children outside of marriage or they might have been homeless women or destitute women or um, teenage girls who looked like they might get up to a bit too much trouble, alcoholic women, even uh, young girls who had been sexually abused or were victims of incest. Um, Yeah, it was quite a mixed group of women there. And what was life like for these women living in the convent? In some ways, it sort of depends on what their life was like before. Beforehand. These these places, um, like Abbotsford Convent didn't shut until 1975 um, and in other places around the world it was um, even more recently than that. And so some women who were there do talk about it as being a prison, basically. They were locked up and they weren't allowed out. Um, some women were there for the rest of their lives. Um, but I think for some women it probably was genuinely a refuge um, and provided a respite. There were several different institutions within it. So there was the Magdalene Asylum for these problem women and they were they were sort of really just one group. There was a, a group of women in there um, who had who sort of made pledges or promises to stay there um, for longer, but essentially it was just that one group of women. But there were also lots of children there. So there was a day school for local children and there was also an industrial school for girls who had been convicted of being neglected. The child welfare legislation that we have today has its roots in this Neglected and Criminal Children's Act um, from the 1860s. And basically it criminalised children for being neglected. When you say that um, our current legislation has its roots in this quite, well, fair enough, archaic, it was 100 years ago, legislation, um, what are some of those components that have carried through um, over the last 100 years? The legislation was designed to train these poor children into um, being obedient citizens. So the girls, they were trained to be obedient domestic servants. That's what the industrial school system trained them to be. And so that's what um, one part of Abbotsford Convent did. Um, But not long after the legislation was introduced, the authorities realised that it was actually quite harmful for children and it wasn't having the effect they desired. And so they introduced this boarding out system, which eventually became the foster care system that we've got today. And um, the, the conviction for being neglected um, was changed. And so, yes, now we don't tend to blame children in foster care for their situation in life. But I think um, those attitudes aren't in the past. Um, we have institutions today um, where we lock up children. And even though we know that it's damaging for those children, I think that the attitudes in the 19th century 
um, yeah, are, are not dissimilar to the attitudes today. And, you know, I think for, and partly what I'm looking at is how it's, the problematization of behaviour was very gendered. So women were punished for their behaviour and men weren't. You know, women who had children outside of marriage could end up in an institution like this. You know, in terms of why my work is relevant, I think there's a couple of different ways. In It's in some ways personal for women who were there themselves. This isn't the only institution like this. There were a lot of institutions like this in Australia and around the world. Um, so for people who were there themselves or who had family members who were there, I think my research contextualises those individual experiences and shows that um, that woman wasn't necessarily at fault, that actually it was part of this systematic problematization of female behaviour. Um, and also, you know, institutions today are problematic in Australian society. Our immigration detention centres, our prisons, um, you know, the ongoing Royal Commission, it does show that we've got this tricky relationship with institutions and it's actually got a really long history. We're a penal colony um, and Abbotsford Convent is just one of these many institutions that has been part of our life and we've used institutions to confine problem groups of people for a long time and even though the institutions have changed and the groups of people have changed, it's actually a practice that um, continues today. That was archaeologist Edwina Kay. Next up, we have Hannah McDougall. Hannah is in La Trobe's business school and is working on Paralympic athlete wellbeing. My research is investigating the wellbeing of Paralympic um, or para sport, I should say, athletes, so athletes who have physical impairments. It's been a massive journey in terms of that approach. Uh, we've had to go through kind of um, the rigor and roll, I suppose, uh, and research background of really laying down the foundations and having some short arguments of why we're researching this area. But when it comes down to crunch time, uh, the importance of of Paralympic athlete wellbeing comes into play by the fact that, you know, people with disabilities face um, higher rates of poverty or uh, higher rates of unemployment. They're not as physically active as the general population. And then these uh, athletes as well, you know, they have physical access, communication and financial barriers that they face on a day-to-day basis. So there's kind of a few obstacles in there for them. Ways to help promote their wellbeing is, is really, really important, not only while they're an elite athlete, but also when they transition out of sport. And we've had prime examples recently in terms of athletes uh, really struggling mentally, um, both kind of in sport and off the field. Uh, so, yeah, kind of a few footballers spring to mind in that sense. So sport's obviously something that's very important to a lot of Australians. Um, can you talk a bit about why you think it's so important? Like what makes sport so special? Sport helps to bring people together, generally speaking, in terms of whether you're playing sport, you're watching sport, you're involved in, in the industry of sport. It really uh, is a is a fabric within our community and not only, you know, the kind of the cities, but also our, our rural communities as well. And from my research, we found that so like for Paralympic athletes or para sport athletes, sport provides a mechanism for them to come into contact with other athletes who can potentially just show them really simple things uh, that make their life easier in terms of, you know, having a wheelchair and learning how to take it in and out of the car and, and become and gain more independence, which is really, really critical. Kind of provides that factor of I'm not alone um, in this world. There's kind of someone else like me, which is always really, really special. But 
it would also provide a mechanism for them to increase their independence, confidence, self-efficacy, all of these kind of array of amazing and positive things. So I think, yeah, sport generally has a really big place in our community, but then is also a massive um, tool for empowerment for, for para-sport athletes. Obviously, Paralympic sport has a big place in my heart and in my life being a, a Paralympian as well. What have you found so far in terms of the the types of things that can help to support the well-being of Paralympic athletes? Uh, In terms of increasing para-athletes well-being, uh, we're currently about to to launch uh, a program, a well-being program, which is um, essentially a brain training program. So these athletes, they spend, you know, 20 to 30 hours a week training their bodies, but uh, we've kind of forgotten the importance of training our, our brains and having that mind-body connection, especially within kind of our current very much 24-7 society where we're currently switched on and we're not taking any time out. And so we're getting quite um, frazzled is probably a bit of an understatement. Essentially, uh, pardon the pun, but give them a a leg up for life. (laughs) That was Hannah McDougall from La Trobe Business School. Our next researcher is Hannah Robert. She's a lecturer at La Trobe's Law School, and her PhD is looking at some of the complexities of legal parentage in Australia. My research takes a close look at how legal parentage works in Australia and looking at how it interacts um, with social change over the 20th century and beginning of the 21st century and asks whether the current model of legal parentage that we've got adequately serves the best interests of the child. And does it? <laughs> um, well, look, at, at the moment I'd say we've got a little bit of a Frankenstein model. Um, we've, we've got a model of parentage which is being pulled in two very, very different directions. So on the one hand, there's kind of a mainstream model of parentage that very much emphasises genetic parentage and is based on two parents, one male, one female. It's also being pulled in a slightly different direction in terms of recognising non-genetic functional parents. So um, if you've become a parent through assisted reproductive technology, such as IVF um, or um, donor conception, and you're not a genetic parent, we've got some terrific reforms. People might know about the 2009 federal reforms that allow non-biological lesbian mothers to go on the birth certificates, etc. So the law's being pulled in these two different directions. Um, so we've ended up with this slightly bipolar model of parentage. So it's either emphasising genetics or functional parenting. It sort of vaguely connects each of those with the best interests of the child, um, but it really doesn't have any analysis about how those two fit together um, or what happens with the two when the two conflict. And unfortunately, we have a lot of these conflicts come up because we have this kind of exclusive two-parent model of parentage that says a child can only have a maximum of two parents. And does that cause challenges in the court? Like, What are the implications for families on the ground? Oh, lots of implications. So I've looked at this in a number of contexts. So what what kind of initial my initial study was looking at um, children where there's uncertainty around their parent um, paternity. So a child grows up thinking that this bloke is their dad, and at some point there's a DNA test, and it turns out he's not a genetic parent. And so what our current law says is that the moment that test comes to court, he's no longer a legal parent. Full stop. That doesn't mean he can't have some he can't get parenting orders, um, but it means any liability for child support stops dead right at that moment and it means that he may, if he chooses um, and if child support has been paid in respect to that child, he may get a refund from the mother. That's quite an extreme genetic model um, and, and it's, it's a massive 
legal change for the child in question when really they're the same person. You hope that, you know, parenting's for life, not just for Christmas, that, you know, if, if someone's signed on as a parent, that, that they, they're going to continue that. So I think that's one of the main contexts. Obviously, also in um, same-sex parenting context, you that, you know, I know a lot of um, lesbian and gay families where they really do recognise three parents or they want to be able to put the donor on the birth certificate, perhaps not as a legal parent, but they want some kind of recognition there. So basically that kind of two-slot model doesn't work for the diversity of Australian families. E- easy, you know, the mass media likes to likes to kind of have one kind of ideal idealised model, but I mean that's also a model that governments tend to like as well. They like to kind of be able to standardise, to be able to define who's related to who, and certainly that more recent emphasis on genetic parentage has really come um came to the fore when we had things like the child support system initiated. And so actually being able to identify who was a parent, um, being able to do that with a level of certainty is something that governments tend to like. And I think it's a really difficult, complex question. I think for judges, often it's a relief to be able to kind of point to a DNA test and go, there, there's the answer. But I guess, you know, I think it provides useful information. I don't think it's necessarily the answer. I think if we're going to really take the best interests of the child seriously, we have to look at that particular child's situation and is it right to strip legal parentage in in situations like that. That was Hannah Robert. Our next researcher is Josvia Cole. She recently completed her PhD in Latrobe's Managing and Marketing Department. She investigated academic successes and the experiences of international students in Australia. In the literature or when we talk about academic success, it's always related to numerical indicators, um, grades, timely completion. It is always measured with measurable indicators. What my studies have found is that postgraduate international students, their academic success is more skewed towards um, non-measurable indicators, such as um, research skills. They would want to acquire, acquire research skills, obtain soft skills, experiencing international life and also contributing whatever they have learned or their studies in going back towards their home country or any other society. So when you talk about academic success, you're not just talking about the marks that people get at university, but also the things that they want to achieve through achieve. the studies. Is that right? Correct. They also mentioned that their academic success is numerical indicators such as getting good grades and also timely completion. But that's not it. For them, because they are postgraduate international students, for them it is very important to be successful in research skills, in soft skills, in experiencing international life because they're international students and also contributing to their home society. So you spoke a bit about um, speaking with the universities and Mm. trying to um, use the benefits of your research. What about for the local students themselves? Mm. Is there anything, um, Mm. any ideas that you would have about how to bridge some of those gaps between international and local students? That's very interesting. Like in the literature and also when you speak to international students or even domestic students, students, you can see that there's limited integration, there's limited assimilation. Look, this study is not talking about academic success per se. We also probe into what are the factors and challenges facilitating the academic success. So one of the challenges is their barriers of friendship between international students and also um, domestic students. 
students. So what international students are proposing is that they should have a workshop between international students and domestic students and work out what they call a common ground for them to talk about, to understand each other. And then they are dispersed off in the um, classrooms or even like, you know, sometimes supervisor and supervisee relationship is broken down because of this lack of understanding of each other's culture, work practices per se. Lecturer or tutors can play their role as well in facilitating those assimilation. If you ask domestic students, they are talking about, oh, international students are among themselves as well. They are not, you know, reaching to us. Where to draw the line? So I think that there is a way forward. Like international students are taking that lead in, you know, assimilating themselves with the domestic students because they want to experience international life. Why would they want to seek international education? It's just not about, you know, money-making business, so to speak. Our next researcher is Jen Wiltshire. Her research is at La Trobe School of Life Sciences and she investigates the microbial communities in dirt. I like dirt. Absolutely. <laughs> what do you like about dirt? What don't I like about dirt? So I, I study soil microbial ecology. So when I look at dirt, I don't just see dirt. I see a whole uh, universe of communities and interactions. And, you know, in one gram of dirt, there's something like, I don't know, uh, between 1,000 and 10,000 different species of microorganisms. So my job or my research is to study them all at once. When we talk about, I guess, microorganisms, I mean, usually bacteria and fungi, there are all sorts of strange and wonderful ones. In our lab, we work with a beautiful one called Geobacter metalloreducens, and it's beautiful because it breathes electricity. What? So we can put it in a microbial fuel cell and it will put electrons onto anodes and cathodes and we can turn it basically into a living battery. Very, very cool little bug. So you said there are lots of species that live in the soil. Sure, yeah. Um, how do they interact? What are some of the things that happen in these wars? Well, okay, so, well, the wars are always exciting to talk about. So that's kind of where, the, uh, where our antibiotics come from. So in the soil, microbes use antibiotics to basically muscle out other species of bacteria when they're competing for space. Now, the space that they tend to be competing for is uh, space in the rhizosphere, which is the root zone. So I work a lot with plant-microbe interactions, so that's kind of the front line of these microbial community wars. Um, the reason they really want to be on those roots is because the plants are constantly pumping uh, what we call root exudates, so that's carbon carbon, nitrogen, basically sort of a buffet of food for the bacteria. So everyone wants to be there, but it's pretty expensive real estate. So we know that in the soil there are microbes that promote plant growth. Can we get any soil to sort of promote plant growth for us? We know these plant growth promoting microbes are everywhere. How do we kind of switch them on? Um, so the other application I'm interested in, which you guys were talking to me about before, was phytoremediation. So this is, you know, when we have soil that has contaminants in it, so something like heavy metals, which are really hard to move. And we know there are trees out there that can not only withstand these heavy metal toxins, but they've evolved to actually actively suck the metals up out of the soil and store them in their leaves. It's a pretty inefficient process, but we do know if we put microbes with these plants that promote the plant growth, the whole phytoremediation process gets sped up. So part of my research is trying to work out, can we get phytoremediation to a sort of efficient enough level where people will start actually using it? Because it's pretty slow at the moment, but it's still very cool. That was Jen Wiltshire. Our next researcher is Kirsty McFarland. Her research is examining the concept of equality in education. 
So I'm doing research at La Trobe University in the politics department about equality in education, doing a theoretical analysis about the type of equality that we should be striving for in education. There's a lot of concern about inequality in education in Australia and in other liberal democracies around the world. But what I've found is that it's not really clear what type of equality societies are actually aiming for. There's many different types of equality that could be relevant in education, but this tends to be ignored in discussions about equality in education. I'm examining and evaluating all these different types of equality, and the aim is to establish basically what type of equality society should be striving for so that we know what the ultimate aim is and we can move towards this rather than continually discuss the importance of equality but not really make progress towards it. Can you tell our listeners um, about some of the different types of equality or the models that some people use? Yeah, so there's heaps of different types of equality really that are discussed in the literature and generally just in public discussions. So sometimes we talk about achieving equal outcomes in education, so maybe we want all children to achieve the same result. Um, often we talk about equal opportunities and that tends to be um, the big one that a lot of people believe we should provide all children with equal opportunities. But in the context of education, equal opportunity can mean many different things. So it could mean basic uh, literacy and numeracy skills, so equal opportunities opportunities to acquire those things. It could mean equal opportunities to acquire um, the skills and knowledge needed to succeed in modern societies, or perhaps equal opportunities so all children can fulfill their potential. So children, um, whatever their talent and motivation is, making sure that they have the opportunity to do that. And then there's other types of equality that suggest that, well, talent like social circumstances is something children don't have any control over, so perhaps we want to eliminate that factor and make sure that all children have an equal education regardless of their talent. So maybe we need to provide extra attention to children with less talent perhaps to compensate for this. So children that struggle, maybe they need extra attention regardless of their talent. There's lots of different types of equal opportunity and then there's equal outcomes um, and there's formal types of equality of opportunities. So basically just non-discrimination in education as well. So we have some pretty big gaps based on Indigenous students and rural students and low socioeconomic students. So that's important. But there's also a lot of talk about pursuing equality in education and improving outcomes or improving opportunities and then policies are implemented that don't actually aim for equality at all. So we see policies that aim to provide all students with a sufficient education, which is great and obviously that's important, but it's not actually equality. So we tend to see within all countries these conflicting approaches. So there's not really a great model because this problem about equality is basically worldwide. There hasn't really been a really thorough analysis of all these different types of equality and any kind of um, determination made about, well, which ones actually matter the most, which ones can we achieve, which ones should we achieve. So that, that is the aim to basically say, okay, well, here is a type of equality or combination of different types of equality that we should be aiming for. And then we can look at policy and we can look at well, which policies will actually help us move towards mm-hmm. this. But there's also a lot of things that can be done in education to, I guess, compensate the inequalities that are created elsewhere by the family or by other sort of factors that disadvantage students. Um, This is an area that you're really passionate about and you spoke about um, the importance of more funding. Can you tell us about why achieving equality in education is important? 
everyone knows that education is important. We know that education has a huge influence on life outcomes that affect your health, that affect your employment, how long you live. So there's all these different sorts of factors showing us how important education is. And so if education is so important and it affects your entire life, obviously it seems incredibly important to ensure that all children have that same starting point to then build their life on. So basically we just want to, you know, for reasons of fairness and justice, if for nothing else, it's really important that all children have those same opportunities to start life on the right foot. That was Kirsty McFarlane. Perla Honeros is a PhD student at La Trobe's Law School. Her research is looking at human rights and the treatment of irregular immigrants in Mexico. My name is Perla Warneros from the La Trobe School of Law. And can you tell us a bit about your research? Yes, my research, I just started my PhD this year, and I'm aiming to find the international responsibility of the Mexican state in the protection of the human rights of irregular immigrants from Central America, that people who travels from those countries, Central American countries in need through Mexico, trying to get to the United States. So what are some of the reasons that people are leaving Central America? What's kind of making them want to immigrate to the US? When people migrate, there are a lot of reasons. It might be poverty, oppression, even natural disasters. In Central America, in the decade of the 1980s, there were some belligerent uh, conflicts. There were uh, there was a civil war. There was a paramilitary strike, and all of these conflicts, particularly in four countries: Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. These four countries suffered from conflicts in that decade that carry on uh, these inequalities in their economy, in their in their society, and later on the problems with drugs. South America, specifically Colombia, and is one of the most um, recognized countries for the production of drugs. And the main consumer is the U.S. So the, the path of drugs from South America to North America is precisely Central America. So drug conflicts, gangs, poverty, oppression, all of this situation have led people trying to seek for a better, a better place to live, better opportunities. And how many people are we talking about? How many people would be moving, say, each year or so? According to some statistics from the United Nations, it is about 400,000 irregular immigrants from Central America crossing the southern border of Mexico. And this is just the southern border. There's people traveling from somewhere else to the United States. In the southern border is over 400,000 people. Do they make it through to America? The ones that have a happy ending, they do. But unfortunately, in Mexico... There are a lot of criminality, and right now Mexico is also subject of drug trafficking organizations, organized crime. And that is a battle that the government has been fighting for the last decade. Unfortunately, when the government decided to fight drug cartels, drug cartels needed another source of income. And that that new source of income was trying to get to Central Americans. They looked for the most vulnerable group and those were the the ones, the, the targeted. What is the Mexican government doing to support these people? That is precisely what my thesis is about. The Mexican government is very focused on fighting drug cartels, but they're not really focused on the protection of the human rights of these people. Human rights are universal. They must be recognized and protected. Doesn't matter uh, that they the regular status. It doesn't matter if they're legal or illegal in the country. They're human beings and they must be protected. 
And Mexico has the international responsibility to protect these rights because Mexico is part of a wide branch of uh, international convenience. So it has an international obligation to protect them. And it is the government is more focused on fighting the drug cartels and the organized crime than to protect irregular immigrants. Mm. So what would it look like on the ground for the Mexican government to be meeting their obligations? Is it about law reform? Is it about the way that the police interact with people? What would you want to see in terms of better protections? Law reform was needed and it has been enacted. Mexico has been doing some stuff about it, but it's just theoretical stuff. There was a big change about human rights in the Constitution in 2011, and there has been an enactment of other laws protecting immigrants. However, it is not what is happening in reality. There are a lot of corrupted officials helping drug crime cartels to reach these people. Sometimes they even hand them. They're, they're on, on, well, documented, but unofficially cases of migrants being handed to drug cartels by officials from, from the state migration officials. That was Perla Haneras. Next up, we have Rebecca Kerpiel. She is conducting a PhD in archaeology at La Trobe, looking at quarries for Aboriginal stone artefacts from the World Heritage-listed Mungo National Park. So I've been doing some archaeological research at a location called Lake Mungo, which is in southwest New South Wales, the traditional lands of the Barkindji, Muddy Muddy and Neantha people. And uh, there's a lot of archaeological research going on out there at the moment. And my contribution to the project is to study the locations where Aboriginal people were getting stone to make stone tools. And I've been looking at what they were doing at these locations, as well as trying to find a way to source the artifacts that are around that landscape and trace them to their source origins. And what have you found so far? Well, actually, using geochemistry, we are able to differentiate between the sources and should then be able to link artefacts with their source locations and reconstruct the ways that people moved around that vast landscape and perhaps, you know, even um, traded with one another. Is there a lot known about this area, about the history of the region? I mean, again, I guess I'm curious about how your work fits in with what we already know about what's happened there over the last 40,000 years or so. So there was some initial research conducted in the 1970s, um, and it was during that time that they found some of the more famous discoveries. There's um, some really old uh, skeletal remains there, Mungo man and Mungo woman, and those were found during the 70s, and some archaeological research was conducted in relation to that. There were recording of those um, burials and also other archaeological traces around Lake Mungo itself. But then for quite some time, not much research was done. And since 2007, Dr. Nicholas Stern at La Trobe University has been running the Mungo Archaeology Project. And that's a collaborative endeavour that's been generating a huge amount of information about the ways people use that past landscape. Um, but a lot, a lot of that research is, is ongoing and current. That was Rebecca Kerpiel. Our final interview is with Victoria Wheel, a PhD student at La Trobe Centre for Ergonomics and Human Factors studying work-life balance in workers in residential aged care. 
Thus far, I've set my work in the residential aged care sector, and one of the things I've found is that the types of flexible working practices that these workers have access to are fairly limited in that they can't work at home and they don't have flexi time. It's difficult for them to knock off early, for instance, but they do have a lot of say over the scheduling of the hours they work, so the number of hours they work and also the particular days that they work. So generally, people like it and people have been able to shuffle their work hours and their work days around to suit them. People really appreciate and value that flexibility. And from the organisation's point of view, it's a really good thing as well because it means that the organisation, they need people on staff the whole time. When you're caring for people in residential aged care, you need staff there for 24 hours. So if you can get people to nominate you know, who wants to take the night shift, who wants the early shift, who wants a Tuesday, who wants a Thursday, it ends up being a win-win really because the organisation's got the coverage it needs. So I think really it's about giving people a say over their work because we know that when we have a say over what we do, when we have a degree of control, that tends to be good for our health and well-being. The changes in technology the outcomes aren't just applicable to residential aged care because we have emails now that we can access at home. People have mobile phones and they're always on. So this idea of balance, whether you're full-time or part-time, I think it's a really important growing issue. And I think a lot of people, when you say to people work-life balance, people just, oh, you know, it's something that's on everybody's mind. And residential aged care is an interesting sector because it's a growing sector. So as as we get older as a nation, we're going to need more aged care services of all kinds. That was Victoria Wheel. That brings us to the end of our podcast, but I hope you enjoyed learning about just 13 of the hundreds of research projects being undertaken at La Trobe University and across Australia. Thanks so much to our guests, and we're looking forward to hearing about your new research findings in the future. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.